You're listening to That You Might Know, a series in the book of 1 John preached by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church. For more information, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning thanking and praising you for what we've heard already. We're so encouraged this morning by hearing the gospel sung as a congregation about the glories of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and his soon coming to take his bride. And Lord, we thank you for that hope that we have. And now, Lord, this morning, as we look to your word in a very practical way, where rubber meets the road, where we deal in real life, I pray, Father, that you allow your spirit to work in our midst through the preaching of your word. I pray that we would listen um, with intention and purpose. Um, I ask that you'd speak to hearts and lives, and what's said this morning would be taken home and applied as we deal and struggle with overcoming. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Take your Bibles, if you would. And you can, we'll start again at 1 John chapter 2, verse 14. We won't be there long. We'll work our way through what has become um, a mini-series within a series. And so that's where we're at this morning. It's actually part six of just one phrase. But let me read it again for you this morning, verse number 14 of 1 John 2. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the wicked one. In this entire text, we've been watching John talk about the position of the believer. He says to little children, "Um, I'm writing to you because your sins have been forgiven. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you have known him who's from the beginning. And I'm writing unto you, young men, because you're strong and you have overcome the wicked one. And we sort of park there talking about overcoming the wicked one, especially in the area of temptation. But our hope is this, that as we understand our position, who we are in Jesus Christ, that the practice of our life now lines up with that position and we walk in obedience to him. That is our hope and our prayer. We said several weeks ago now that the motivation for all of this comes from Ephesians chapter 1. And look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Hagios, holy, separate, distinct, set apart for a purpose and a plan. Not profane, not common, but holy. Here once again, the quote by J.C. Ryle, 19th century Bishop of Liverpool. He says this, We must be holy because this is one grand end and purpose for which Christ came into the world. Jesus is a complete Savior. He does not merely take away the guilt of a believer's sin. He does more. He breaks the power of sin. Um, This morning, it's, it's not just what we are saved from. Certainly, we gather together, we glory, we praise, we sing about what we've been saved from. 
from death, from hell, from eternal separation from the God who is all goodness and life, who is life abundant, who in his presence is joy forevermore. And we should come and gather as a people this morning and certainly praise him for what we've been saved from. But we want to focus now on what we've been saved to. That's not just the end of the story. We have been called to holiness. Not just the pastor or the elder or the deacon or the godly old saint. We, as God's people, part of the equation is that God has saved us to make us holy. B.B. Warfield, the great Princeton theologian, talks about the great change. And what he means by that is a transformed life by the gospel. By the way, the gospel is to change our lives. He says this, The great change is not a matter of theory only, but of experience. That in salvation, the sinner is radically and thoroughly transformed, and that this transformation is inevitably reflected in every believer. This morning, we must understand that our purpose is to be sanctified, to be holy, to be radically transformed by the power of Jesus Christ and his gospel. So, it's our purpose. Believer, if you're looking for purpose in life, let me help you this morning. Of course, do the will of God. But part of that is that I strive after holiness. That I give glory to God in my life because of the radical transformation. I am no longer what I used to be. We thank God for that. It's our purpose. Not only that, it pleases God. When God's children start to look like their older brother, Jesus, the Father is pleased. Because we look like the Son, who is beloved, who always pleased Him, who is perfect. And this transformation is profitable for us. I need not tell you this morning that the world is dark, dirty, horrible. Sin is everywhere. And by the way, sin is so mundane. It's mundane. Everyone does it. Everyone lies and cheats and steals and gossips and fornicates and gets into pornography. All of it. This is the world we live in. And yet, when we strive for holiness, when we strive to be like Jesus, we come in line with the purpose we were created to be. The men and women that we were created to be. To reflect his glory, his beauty and honor. And when we do this, it rises us above the muck and the mire of this sinful and wicked world. It's profitable for us, and it's profitable for others. The best thing you can do this morning, as a man, as a father, as a woman, as a wife, as a teenager, as a single, as a widow, as a boss, as an employee, as a neighbor, as a citizen, the best thing you can do this morning is... Look like Jesus. 
Because wherever Jesus goes, there is peace, joy, love, rest, and order. And that's our calling. But here's the problem. It's difficult. To be honest this morning, to live a holy, sanctified life in the world we live in is difficult. Not only is it difficult, the writers of the Bible use phrases like, it's warfare. It's a battle. If someone told you, just become a Christian and life is easy and it will get easier and all of your wildest dreams will come true, they lied to you. It's a lie. Sometimes it gets more and more difficult. And so the writers say, listen, in this, this, this walk is a battle. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. And I want you to see the tone that Peter used uses with believers. He says, beloved, beloved, not you dirty rascals. Here you go again. You're always a problem. You're never going to get it. Beloved, I beg you. Here's a man whose heart is for the body of Christ. And he says, listen, I love you and I'm begging you. I'm begging you. He says, as sojourners and pilgrims. He's reminding them and reminding us of our status. He says we are sojourners and pilgrims. It's interesting. That's it's one Greek word describing both of those. Sojourner, pilgrim, foreigner. And here's the idea behind both of those words. He's talking now and begging with a group of people who is a person who for a period of time lives in a place that is not their normal residence. Beloved, I'm begging you as strangers, as pilgrims, as people who are living in a spot right now that is not your normal residence. Child of God, this world is not our home. And we become so attached to this world that we forget what we're here for. Let me just give you a thought that might just bring you back to reality. 50 years from now, and we have a young congregation, so this won't affect everybody. But 50 years from now, many of us will be in eternity. Do the math. Do the math. I doubt I'll be standing here at 103. And if I am, you won't want to be here. <laughs> Something went terribly wrong. Right? The reminder is, we're leaving this planet. And Peter loves these people so much, he says, I'm begging you to remember that. And here's what I want you to do. He says, to abstain. Abstain, which, which means... Um, be at some distance from fleshly lust. And fleshly lust is behavior typical to human nature, but in this context, it's specifically speaking about that, that base physical desire that we know leads us the wrong way. He says, I'm begging you, abstain from this, stay away from this. Why? Because, he says, it wars, um, it, it wars against our soul. I don't know where I'm reading now. Oh, lust, which war against our soul. Our soul, it's a battle, it's a warfare. It battles against our soul, our mind, our thoughts, our feelings, our hearts, our very being. I need not tell you this. 
In our world today, we are bombarded with messages and ideas and, and cliches that daily, hourly, everywhere we go, everything we see tells us that this is the way we ought to live. And it's not. When the world says, follow your heart, um, that is not the solution. That's the problem. Follow your heart. Love is love. What, what does that even mean? Love yourself. You deserve it. It doesn't matter what you do as long as in the end you're happy. So your marriage doesn't matter. Your kids don't matter. The community doesn't matter. Just you be you. Who cares? And to all of these warrings that happen against our soul, Jesus says in Matthew 26, 41, watch, be alert, you're in danger, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. And so over the last several weeks, we've been devising this practical plan on what it means to watch in the area of temptation as we strive for holiness. Let me quickly review, we've not been here for a while. In real time, what, what we must do, number one, we must realize our own sinful heart. We realize our own sinful heart. Listen to me. There is treachery within. In every one of our hearts, there is weakness and treachery. And we must be honest and have a self-distrust. My heart and your heart lies to us all the time, every day. And so we realize our own sinful heart. Here's what we do. Letter A, if you're taking notes or even seeing them on the overhead, we rely on God to prove our hearts. If I know that my heart can deceive me, what I do is say, Lord, Psalm 139, search me, try me. You know my heart. You know my thoughts. You know my motives, my attitude, and why I really do what I do. Lord, prove my heart. Show me. Then letter B, we read his word. This morning, we need truth outside of ourselves. We need absolute truth outside of ourselves. We read the word of God, it does two things. It pierces. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of sunder of soul and spirit. It, I mean, it cuts to the quick. It lays us bare. The word of God goes out, and you felt this. It hits you like it was talking to you. It lays us bare, and then we store it within our hearts so I don't sin against him. And then we run to the person of Christ. Listen, I know what we're talking about this morning with temptation and the battle, we all fail. All of us. And there's a tendency when we go through things like this and we're excited, Lord, I know I want to do this, I want to overcome, I want to strive for holiness, and we fail. We have a tendency to run away from Jesus. Um, there's a song that Shane and Shane sing, it's, it's Psalm 46, and it says, You who know the hearts of men, and still you let them live. God who melts the mountains, come wrestle us and win. He knows our heart. He knows our failure. He knows our sin. And when we know that he knows that, the idea is I'm running as far away from this holy God as I can. And Jesus says that's the wrong answer. He sympathizes with us. Not only does he let us live, but he longs to show compassion. We are to run not away from him, but to him. So, this morning, the first thing that we do is we realize our own sinful heart. Number two, and this is all new now. Practical plan to overcome temptation. Number two, 
Reduce our exposure to temptation. Reduce your exposure to temptation. You say, Rick, this is common sense. Yes, and common sense is not that common anymore. Even among the children of light. We are to um, reduce our exposure to temptation. Three thoughts underneath this. The first is this, letter A, provide nothing for the flesh to gratify its desires. Look at Romans chapter 13, verse number 14. Paul says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll stop. We won't spend much time here. We'll be back to this. This is a powerful truth. He says, put on. Um, when he says put on, uh, that uh, phrase is an imperative verb. Verb. It is a, it's a command. He says, put on Christ. It's a simple verb. One time, it, put on Jesus Christ. And it has the idea of putting on your clothes. So Paul says to the believer, hey, listen, here's the deal. Simple command. Put on Jesus Christ. You just put him on. He doesn't say anything about how we feel. You put him on. Listen, when you get up in the morning and you don't feel like getting dressed, and you're going to work, you know what you should do? You should get dressed. Right? Or end up in jail. Doesn't matter how you feel. You put on Jesus Christ. And this is the idea of the Christian life. I am making a decision, this simple command, today I put on Jesus Christ. And, and this has great ramifications. This is, verse is not on the screen. But Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And now the life that I'm living, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I put on Jesus, which means I act like Jesus. I talk like Jesus. I respond like Jesus. It's a simple action. But now watch what he says next. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Make is a present imperative, which means this. It's repeated over and over again. It is a continuous action. I put on Christ, I face a day, and then I am to make no provision. Repeat it over and over again. Don't, don't, don't. Provision means this. Provision is to give attention beforehand, to have in mind, to do. So he says... Don't make provisions for your flesh. Don't allow in your mind this thought to go over and over and over again as many times as you have to. Stop. Stop. Don't give it attention. Don't let it roll over in your minds. Don't think about the plan on how I will accomplish what I want to do that does not please him. And we do this all the time. Remember, my friend, it's the battle of the heart and mind. And this is how it works. James told us, it starts with an attraction. Ooh, that looks good. I feel like I deserve. I deserve comfort. I deserve rest. I deserve to be pampered. I deserve a break. I deserve whatever. And that attraction then goes to deception. I start believing. Not only do I deserve it, I need it. I need rest. I need this. Whatever it is. And then we believe the lie that this time it'll be different. This time it won't be a problem. This time it will finally fulfill me. That leads to preoccupation. Now I have to have this. Literally becoming a God in our own lives. And this making provision sets us up for, for sin, that conception that sin is born from thoughts and actions. Brother and sister this morning, 
If we're going to reduce our exposure to temptation, we must bring our thoughts into captivity. Right? If you sow a thought, you will reap an action. If you sow an action, you will reap a habit. If you sow a habit, you will reap a character. This does not happen overnight. This is a journey. We must say no and say it as many times as you have to. Several months ago, uh, Greg and Becca were teaching uh, Sunday school. They were filling in for uh, Paul and Debbie. And uh, while they were teaching, they were talking about Pharaoh and the children of Israel. And so as they're talking, they say, Pharaoh says, okay, I'll let your people go. And then, of course, he does it. It goes on and on and on. And while they're telling the story, um, Will Allen, Will, are you in here this morning? All right, awesome. (laughs) Maybe I start calling everyone's name that they respond like that. Are you awake this morning? Um, And so as they're they're going through the thing, and Pharaoh says, okay, I'm going to let them go, Will says, he's lying. He's lying. That guy's such a liar. I can't believe it. He's not going to do this. He's lying. And then all the kids start saying, yeah, he's lying. He's lying. And it was almost like a riot in there. (laughs) All telling Pharaoh that he's lying. Do you know, that's probably not a bad idea in our own life when temptation comes to deceive us to say, stop, you're lying. And if you have to say it out loud, I'd say it out loud. Stop. The thought is wrong. It's evil. It's deceptive. Don't do it. Maybe many of us this morning should be like Will Allen and just say out loud or in our hearts, stop. Don't make provision for your flesh. Don't do it. Letter B. Pursue righteousness by fleeing youthful lust. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 21, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself or herself from the latter, and if you look in context, the latter is departing from iniquity. He says, all those who name the name of Christ, your believer, we're supposed to depart from iniquity, sin, crooked behavior. So he says, cleanse himself from the latter. He will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master prepared for every good work. This is pursuing holiness. I want want to possess this vessel of mine, this body, so I can be used by him. And then here's what he says. He says, flee also youthful lust. The same word that we talked about in in, um, Peter. It's, It's that fleshly desires. He says, flee. Avoid doing something. Get out of there. Don't stick around. And so we pursue righteousness by fleeing youthful lust. My brother and sister this morning, it is not a sign of strength to continually put yourself in a position where you know you can and eventually will stumble. When we expose ourselves to temptation like that, it's not strength, it's a trap. God says to all of us this morning, listen, if you want to possess this vessel, your body, in honor and holiness, there are times in your life that you just get out. You flee. Paul picks this up in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. Now these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition. These things, back up again, he's talking to the children of Israel. Their whole journey through the wilderness 
How did they do over 40 years, good or bad? Terrible. Failure after failure after failure. And Paul says, we have these things written. Why? They're an example. Because we would never do these things. We would never not believe God's promises. We would never not believe he's faithful. We would never complain, would we? Ever? And he says, these things are an example. Why? For an admonition, for instruction, to advise concerning dangerous consequences of some action. So when you read the Old Testament and you see Israel failing over and over and over again, understand it's there for you, it's there for me. Look at the next phrase. Verse number 12, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. My brother and sister, this is not a time to be arrogant and full of pride. When you believe, I would never do that. And you hear the fall of another believer and you puff yourself up. You, my friend, are in real danger. No one's above any sin. No one. Any sin. Any sin. And then he says this, he's made a way of escape. Look at verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. We're all in the same storm. We all face the same kind of temptations. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you're able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Whatever we're facing God says, I am faithful. There's a door. There's a window. There's a moment that we have to escape. We extricate ourselves out of there. We don't stand there. We flee. Listen now. You don't go to the site. You don't. You don't click that advertisement. You don't hang out with those friends who before took you down a path that was destructive, thinking this time it's going to be different. You don't enter that conversation with that coworker that you have an attraction to. What you do is you flee. And if you're arrogant enough to think I'm going to stand here and I'm going to be okay, you are a fool. Because it will wear you down. God already said what we must do. So many times we leave church and, oh, great message. What are you going to do about this? This is a warning for God to say, pursue holiness. And when we don't, my friend, how many times have we been promised happiness, peace, satisfaction? This time's different. It's never different. It will never be different. Ever. Ever. We flee. We flee. And here's the final thing we do this morning. We practice the presence of Christ. We practice the presence of Christ. If you're like me, when temptation comes, I know Jesus, I love Jesus, I know he will never leave me nor forsake me, but when the temptation's in front of me, then Jesus is sort of at the peripheral. Like, 
He's not in front of me. He's sort of to the side of me. He's sort of like taking a break. He's sort of like out to lunch. And, and we sort of think, yes, I understand. I love Jesus. Yes, I know him. He'll never leave me. But with this is in front of me, now it's like he's at the peripheral. He's here. Believer, he is not. He is not out to lunch. He has not disappeared. He's not in the peripheral at all. Because he is there. Tozer, in his great work, The Knowledge of the Holy, is talking about practicing the presence of Christ. And here's what he says. Practicing the presence of Christ consists not of projecting an imaginary object from within his or her own mind and then seeking to realize its presence. So, okay, I need to practice the presence of Christ. So I close my eyes. Okay, Jesus. Okay, blonde hair, blue eyes. Flip-flops, right? Really skinny, kind of nice to everybody. Okay, he's right in front of me. Number one, he was a Jew, didn't look like that. And number two, that's ridiculous. That's not what it means to practice the presence of Christ. i got to work up this, this sense that Jesus is standing here. Tozer continues to say, that's not what it is. Instead, it is rather to recognize the real presence of the one whom all sound theology declares to be already there. God is. And God is here. Christ is. And Christ is here. And I promise you, there is something about practicing the presence of Christ that will change our lives. And not just in temptation. But in everything we do, how I interact with the lost, or my family, or my kids, or my spouse, or my neighbors, practicing the presence of Christ will change our lives. Um, I, I love my dad. Um, and my dad sends thanks to this church over and over again. It's amazing. He's still alive. He knows the prayers of God's people. Thank you. But my dad, growing up, was a scary man. Like a really scary man. He grew up in Cleveland, and um, he was the only white guy in a Puerto Rican gang. He's not Puerto Rican, but he was in the gang. And when he was 17 years old, he worked at McDonald's, and uh, the manager kicked him in the rear end and said he was lazy, which my dad has never been lazy. And my dad turned around, knocked the guy out. And quit. I think he was going to be fired anyway, so it really didn't matter. <laughs> right? But that was my dad. And I have to tell you something. If my dad was around, there were things that would change in my life. One, there would be this sense of consternation or fear. Uh, there are things I did not do because either my dad was standing there or the thought of my father Push those thoughts far from my mind, right? Consternation or fear. Not only that, um, courage. Courage. If my dad was standing near me, I had nothing to be afraid of. I, you might not believe this, but when I was younger, um, I got beat up all the time. And I'm sure it wasn't my sarcasm, but I was, I was literally... <laughs> Like, I, I, people just wanted to 
pummel me. I, I don't understand. And so there was one day when I was on my front porch, I remember it vividly, West 120th, Cleveland, Ohio, and there was a punky kid in the neighborhood, and, and he did something to my middle brother, Scott, and so we called him up on the porch, and we jumped the kid, just Scott and, and, and me on this kid. And he was a big kid, and he was hard to hold on to. And while we were doing that, his buddy came up, walked to the side of the porch. It was like eight steps up, like this, probably higher than this. And he grabbed my brother, punched him in the face, and crumbled my brother. So here I am, hanging on for dear life now to this kid. And I know if I let go, I'm done. But what the kid didn't know is my dad was in the house. And we had this old aluminum door. And every time we were tussling around, I would kick the door as hard as I could because I knew my dad, if I was kicking on that door, would be furious and would come out. And sure enough, the third time around, I kicked that door, and I'm holding on to your life. Scotty's in the corner crying. The other kid's still there. My dad, I could hear him coming. I, mean, I could hear, like, and boom, boom, boom. He flings the door open, and in a moment, he realized I was getting beat up again. <laughs> this is old school, so he grabbed that kid, like, just grabbed that kid. He tossed him off of our porch into the front yard. It was just like, whoosh. I was like, yeah, come back anytime. <laughs> mess with Dressler, right? Great courage, not my own. And then comfort. Um, I don't want to talk to you about this. I'm going to say something that some of you will be upset with. But when we were kids, we went to haunted houses. I'm not, I'm not endorsing them, so don't talk to me about it. But we would go. And uh, I remember being a kid, and my dad would laugh at those places. He thought it was hilarious. And we would climb up him. We would climb up him completely. Because we were terrified. <sighs> Paul says in Colossians 1.27, The hope of glory, Christ in you. Christ in you. I don't have to drum up this idea of, oh, I'm picturing Jesus. No, he's nearer than your thoughts. It is Christ in us, the hope of glory. He is here. He is, he is here, and by the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ lives within us. Can you even fathom that? That the God of heaven has taken residency in your heart and in your life. And so, there should be consternation at times. There should be fear. And there should be a holy fear. Like Jesus, what my eyes see, you see. What my ears hear, you hear. Where my feet go, you go. And oh Jesus, I don't want to disobey you. Right? Practice the presence of Christ. But not only consternation, courage. Courage. If Jesus is within me, the perfect Son of God, then I do not have to fear nor give up in the fight. Yes, I'm weary. Yes, I'm tired. But I can take courage because the risen Christ is in, in me during the battle. He's not just on my flank out there protect, protecting the rear. He is in me. And you and I can take courage no matter what temptation we're facing. And then finally, comfort. Comfort. I rejoice. I have a Savior who loves me enough 
to not to leave me the way he found me. I can rejoice to please him and be right with the one who gave his life for me. Can I tell you something? Um, God didn't get a good deal when he got us. Look at your own brokenness, my own brokenness. It's like, oh my goodness, I got to get that one. <laughs> no, no. He set his love upon us. He's lavished us with his love. And what a comfort that is to know that as I strive for holiness, he is with me, he loves me, and he is for me. My brother and sister, I, we fail. You fail. You failed. Maybe you failed this morning. I failed. I'm trying to think of this morning, probably. Right? That's the reality of it. But we can strive for holiness. We're called to it. We must bring our position in line with our practice and be overcomers. So this morning, let me just encourage you. Reduce your exposure to temptation and start today. Realize our hearts they're deceptive. They have wrong desires. Now, now reduce our exposure, and let's live for the glory of God this week. This week. Start today. Start today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we are so unworthy, and yet you continually love and care and are for us. And when we fail, you welcome us home and forgive and restore. Lord, I don't know the congregation, who needs to have this most. We all need this sometime in our life. But I pray that we'd see your grace and your kindness, that we would have a heart, that your goodness would lead us to repentance this morning. And so, Father, help us make real decisions today in our seat as you've convicted us about our own sins, whatever their struggles may be, that we would have a desire to strive for holiness. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about what you've just heard or are interested in the ministry of Maple City, please visit our website at maplecitybaptistchurch.com.